It's all about Australia's favourite obsession, property. G'day, my name's Jeremy Cowan and this is my podcast, where together we'll hear interesting and inspiring stories with a connection to property. See, everybody loves property. You can touch it, you can live in it, you can even collect the rent from it. But one thing's for sure, as much as life changes, you can't get on without property. And that's the story that you're going to hear today. See, there's five drivers of property prices, infrastructure, population, government-granted licenses, and then credit and technology. And it's credit and technology that we're here to talk about today. See, we're living through a time of prodigious technological advancements that spawned a new industry, the fintechs, financial technology companies. And these companies are revolutionising commerce, finance and banking as we know it. It's a space that's moving really fast, right under our noses without many of us even being aware of it. But this industry is going to have a profound impact on both our lives and of course the property market. So to guide us through this ether of advancements and opportunities is entrepreneur, innovator, startup expert and former board member and treasurer of Fintech Australia, Luke Howes. Welcome to Property, Australia's Favourite Obsession. Thank you, Jeremy. Good to be here. Luke, I've got to start. Can you start by describing what exactly is the fintech industry? It's an industry that is all about introducing technology to financial services, to finances. And so that's where the word comes from, isn't it? FinTech, it's finance and technology. And so really, it's all about creating change. It may be disruption, innovation, um, but there's a better way to do things in financial services through technology. And so a lot of that is around better processes, it may be eliminating paperwork or manual processes or introducing completely new services or, or ways of working. So um, does that make sense Sense to you as a good description? Uh, absolutely. And I guess the, the, the follow-up question has got to be, you know, where does innovation come from? You know, how does it start and how, does, how do you as an entrepreneur um, come up with an idea and, and, and design a system? You know, where does that inspiration and where does innovation really stem from? There are two areas that I focus on for innovation or making things better. And the one is problems. Um, what, is, what is problematic? What, what is taking too much time? What has a lot of manual effort associated with it? And can technology improve that? And the second one ties in really with looking for problems, which is friction. And I think it's shaped my thinking a lot. Uh, probably 10 or 12 years ago, I heard a venture capitalist from the US at an event in Sydney, and he talked about looking to reduce friction. They were the sorts of companies he was looking to fund. And it's fairly obvious, but that was uh, a light bulb moment for me where I started looking for friction in, in businesses or in processes and thinking, ah, oh, that's causing people issues or grief. Let's see if there's a better way through technology. So either looking for problems to solve or looking at the areas of friction uh, are two of the main things I, I look for in a, a place you can innovate. So you've got a fantastic background and a lot of experience personally within the fintech industry, and we'll get onto that later on. Um, but I've got to ask, you know, the, like for us, 
property is very much uh, like property is driven by what we would describe as our five drivers: yeah, infrastructure, population, government granted licences, and then of course the other two are both credit and technology. And all of those things, you know, when they're in play, they really go to increasing our own productivity. And of course, productivity leads to further product uh, profitability, which for us, we would see as manufacturing back in the land price. So from a fintech point of view, you know, where do you see this, um, this technologies or these technologies taking us? How is it going to change our lives and, and where are these friction points going to be removed? I think technology in property and as property investors, those interested in, in the property obsession, uh, can, can benefit from a number of areas. Uh, one is maybe understanding what's possible. Uh, some of it's understanding your current position. And so there's a number of um, startups and technology tools that are focusing on managing property portfolios. So you spend less time pulling in receipts from various places and organizing your tax, but just doing it really simply all in one place. Uh, other technology startups are looking at, at budgeting or maybe understanding your, like your financial position and what you can afford, which is then where technology and credit then starts to tie together. And the area where we were heavily involved for many years was in the credit space with technology that helps make credit applications faster and easier. So I think all of these areas, you'll see it also going into government uh, with um, hopefully being easier to interact with government, um, that more technology will happen there. And so the whole process of dealing with property should become more streamlined, uh, whether that's on the finance side or the credit side or how you manage your portfolio or how you interact with government or your professional services providers should all be made much more seamless um, through good technology that's either already out or is emerging at the moment. So what are some of the things, can you describe some of the amazing, you know, advancements? Because, you know, advancements don't just come about with, um, you know, someone has an idea and then, um, you know, you're able to just produce it. Like you couldn't, like Facebook couldn't just come about because someone had the idea of Facebook. You know, Mark Zuckerberg sat in that room and came up with the idea. There had to be a whole lot of other technological innovations that occurred before that and then converge at that point in time to enable uh, Facebook to come alive. Um, you know, what are the sort of things that we're seeing at the moment? You know, what are those convergence of technologies and and what are some of those amazing fintech advancements that, um, uh, that you've seen um, um, that are a that you know that we're starting to embrace. Uh, so maybe I'll start on the credit side of things because that is where we spent the last seven years and our products, bank statements, or proviso was in that space. And so our the tools that we built were automatically logging into someone's bank account with their permission to extract all their relevant bank statement information. So if you go back ten or fifteen years before that. Um, internet banking needed to be invented and needed to exist in mm. order to be able to extract that automatically. And then you had to have the right data in there and people had to be familiar with transacting electronically. So that's all the stuff we take for granted now because we've all been doing it for 20, 25 years interacting online. But that was the precursor to being able to provide um, services that can automatically retrieve some of that data that sits in your online banking. Then once you can get the data out, uh, that's great because it saves one, one area of friction in retrieving bank statement information to give it to your broker or your bank or your lender. 
But then we've also seen workflow management tools that a number of brokers use. Uh, and there's a lot of great ones in the market like Sales Tracker and EasyDocs and File Invite that mortgage brokers and their clients use, which allow people to collate their information far, far easier. And so that's just another incremental improvement that then ties into a bank statement service that we have. And then you have technological innovations for the lenders so that they can get all this information in and assess it much quicker. And they start dealing rather than with assessors looking at paper files on a desk, they start to have uh, systems that work with algorithms and use raw data like XML feeds of the bank statement information so that they can then decision. And so you decision far quicker. So you're getting a decision in an hour or two hours rather than in two or three days because somebody's having to go through a pile of paperwork. And then for cash to be dispersed uh, in a lending scenario, we're now seeing uh, so real-time payments being made. The national payments uh, platform has been rolled out over the last few years and we'll see a lot more innovation in that space in the coming years so that we can transact money far easier uh, in, a, in a seamless, immediate way rather than waiting one to two days for a, for a transfer from bank to bank. Um, so this is just one little area of the market that impacts property but you probably have 15 or 20 different drivers and different companies and technologies, all just looking at different aspects of that value chain, adding value and together, it starts to add up to something really amazing where you can have a more seamless experience. Like when you jump in an Uber, it's so much quicker and easier than um, maybe doing how we used to do it with a taxi five years ago. And so there's many different areas of financial technology which are being reformed in that way. And maybe just another one that quickly pops to mind is just thinking about um, PEXA and conveyancing. And there's a few, few companies playing in that space now. But as we move towards electronic conveyancing and more, more government bodies come online, um, that we lose a lot of the manual paperwork searching and processes and um, come up with a more streamlined technology approach. Do you think, though, it's an area, Luke, where – and I, I do want to come back to actually the um, uh, your your original business um, bank statements because it's it really is a fantastic precursor to a whole lot of things that are going on. But do you think the fintech industry um, is very much an industry where it's the pioneers that get the arrows in their backs um, <laughs> that often, you know, those who run in front of the curve with, you know, tremendous – ideas and innovation, like it sometimes takes some time for, uh, you know, the commerciality to catch up with them? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Jeremy. That can happen. I think that's the same in any industry. So it's not just exclusive for fintech, uh, but those who do run out in front, uh, you put yourself out there. And I think there's the opportunity for upside, outsized rewards if everything goes well. But if the timing's not quite right or the market's not ready for it, or the technology is not in a, in a place that can really scale up, uh, then absolutely you do see some, some fintech companies that don't make it and haven't made it. Uh, but I think that's just part of innovation as well. Entrepreneurs are there and timing and, and luck is part of it. And part of how you can convince the market to come along with you is definitely part of it. And But I would hope that no entrepreneur would would hopefully live in a fear of that happening to them that they that if they look at the market objectively and say no I think the timing's right that it's always a chance but you're better off in my opinion giving it a shot because if you can get out in front and actually make something before anyone else has made it then you really have potentially the competitive 
competitive advantage and and jump on your competitors in the future as well so it's it's a timing it's all a risk but i would i, I think that it, it's worth going early if you can because then you get attention which then helps with your marketing and your distribution as well so your timing was pretty good with bank statements um wasn't it um you yep. were one of the first um and certainly one of the um most successful in that uh, in that space of being able to collect um, personal data, um, you know, from from uh, customers, um, you know, obviously with their with their say so and the like, um, you know, where did that idea, you know, or actually maybe, do you want to describe a little bit more, you know, with regards to what the business was about, who who were your customers, and and what was the idea behind it? Yeah, sure. Uh, so the timing was very fortunate in the space we were in. Uh, we didn't actually start out looking to build a bank statement provider. So I think that was one of the things that the market told us that the timing was right for this sort of product. And I'll explain what I mean, because we had been in the financial services industry with a comparison website, and we we wanted to do something that leveraged more of our technical technical capabilities that we had in-house. So I founded that company with my brother, Dallin, and he's very good technically. And so we're looking at building a product that was more technical in nature and where we could nurture more relationships with our customers. And so we looked at building a budgeting app. And so we had a very basic prototype of that budgeting app where at the time there was nothing in Australia where you could get data feeds in from all your different bank providers and maybe your super accounts and show it all in one place on one app. This had been done in the States with mint.com and it had been very successful over there. And so we were thinking in that sort of space. And I went and showed an early prototype to a couple of lenders who I knew. And one of them said, oh, that's interesting, but our biggest bottleneck is getting bank statements from clients in an online environment. Can your technology help with that? And so instantly I was reminded of that talk by the venture capitalist about friction. And I thought bottleneck, well, there's a real, there's a friction problem for this lender. Is this a problem that's encountered by other lenders as well? And I found that there'd been some legislative changes with responsible lending, that there was being more weight put on supporting documentation like bank statements. And so for online lenders and anyone who was trying to provide a digital experience, this problem was really emerging. Um, and so this was, I think this was part of the timing piece. We didn't have that insight when we were asking around, but then the market gave us that insight and gave us that feedback that uh, there was a real problem they had with retrieving bank data in an automated online environment. And so we, we started looking into that and uh, it, took us, it took us a couple of months but then we saw there was an American provider doing it, but not really in this lending space so much. And so we set out to be the fastest company at retrieving the data and being very Australian focused. So we focused on what Australian lenders needed and that ended up becoming brokers later on. But our, our early market was with lenders online. So they might've been doing small or medium or even large personal loans where people wanted money quickly. This wasn't a mortgage where you knew it was gonna take three or four weeks for the process from start to finish. This was somebody needed 10 or $20,000 because they needed to buy a car or 3000 bucks because they needed some cash for a holiday or something else. And so this was fast turnaround money. And so these lenders wanted tools that enabled the customer to apply quickly, 
but also allow the lender to assess the loan quickly and also make better lending decisions. And this data we were getting, we were able to categorize it and say, well, this is Jeremy's wage. This is how much he pays on his mortgage each month. Um, this is how much he spends on pet food and so he gambles a little bit and, and all of this intelligent data that we could give to the lenders to help them make much quicker decisions than having an assessor look through things manually. So the timing was fortunate for us, um, but it was one where it was really just probably the tip of the iceberg when it came to responsible lending and digital transformation that we were really fortunate. And so we started working with these lenders. And then after a year, we had brokers who came to us and said, oh, we need to collect bank statements. Can you get bank statements for brokers? And we needed to get a few extra pieces of documentation and official bank documents. And so then brokers started using us. So we had hundreds of brokers start to use us. And after five or six years, it ended up being six or 7,000 brokers and about 15 or 16 banks that used us then for their internal credit decisioning. So it started at a, a niche part in the market, but then expanded across the market as more and more players saw utility in what we were providing. So can I ask, when abouts was that that you first launched bank statements? What year are we talking? We're talking mid-2013 that we had the idea and the concept and took us a couple of months to validate, validate that idea, talking to a few other lenders. Then late 2013, so September, October, my brother started coding up the first banks because we had to work out how to log into a bank remotely. So we would present a screen that said, hi, Jeremy, we need to verify your income and expenses. Please log into your bank, pick your bank. And then we were taking that person's login details securely and then logging into their bank account on their behalf to extract that data. And then we wouldn't give the data back to the customer, we'd give it straight to the lender. And so it was a real fraud proof thing for the lenders too, because we didn't have customers who there were photoshopping information and changing mm. their wages or their pay slip and sending it through. So it took us a couple of months to get the first prototype ready by late 2013, when we started getting our first customers on in early 2014. And was it hard to get traction for such an idea? In certain segments of the market, I think people were very skeptical. And so that was more traditional lenders uh, where they yeah, hadn't seen or heard of anything like this before. Uh, the, the personal lending market and the online lending market were all about efficiency and also complying with responsible lending in their own regulations. And so they were very interested in things that could help them be responsible lenders and also compliant lenders and then also make great lending decisions and in addition to those things of helping their business it was also a really great customer experience because it only took the customer 20 or 30 seconds to do this process with their bank statements which was so much better than having to send them off to find bank statements and print them off or scan them and email them in so those lenders where we could talk to either owners or CEOs or executives where our technology impacted their bottom line and the money that went into their pocket at the end of the day and the profitability of their business, they were very, very quick to look at adopting technology like that. And then the rest of the market, which was a longer sales cycle that then developed over years as they saw these other lenders successfully use it and, and customers start to say to the bigger lenders, hey, when are you gonna start using this bank statement service? This is really easy. Uh, that that was when it started to change at, at sort of the higher end of town. So as both your business matured and, and the market matured, um, you, you know, continually gained traction, but how was the, to the product itself, but 
How did the attitude towards tech change over that time? I think some people had been had a quite negative view of tech uh, at around that 2013, 2014 stage uh, because software and software as a service had been around for a number of years but was starting to emerge in property and, uh, and in credit and in lending. And so a lot of the lenders and customers we were speaking to didn't have a lot of software as service products that were cloud-based from the past. But I think as we and others started to come into the market and people had a good experience with it and realized, oh, we don't have to build everything ourselves or we don't have to rely on off-the-shelf software, which doesn't really meet our needs exactly. We can get a a SaaS service that's cloud-based. There's ongoing improvements and benefits to the product and I can give feedback and that feedback actually goes into the roadmap and impacts the sort of software we'll use in the future. I think people got really excited by this and and since then we've seen well, the whole industry and most industries have started to be infiltrated by software as a service products uh, where it's all cloud-based and and really there's a, a keen keen focus on the customer and making sure the customer has an amazing experience because the customer has choice in the market now and you don't want your customers leaving so you need to keep them happy so i think there's been over that period there's just been a, a really strong growth in confidence from everyone in the market that software can work and can really uh, change a business and make it far more profitable and efficient so you live in the beautiful part of the world that is Adelaide, mm-hmm. um, as do I. Did you find that, and of course we choose to live here because it is the, the greatest place in the world, was that a help or a hindrance when you're building the business? Uh, I've probably got a fairly unique view on that because what you probably don't know, Jeremy, is I, when I started the business in 2013, I was living in Sydney. And oh, so- we're going to terminate this call right now. <laughs> but then I changed my ways and I returned to Adelaide. <laughs> uh, so my wife was from Sydney. So we'd lived there for about uh, probably nine years and, and been close to her family. And so when we started the business, my brother was in Adelaide. He was developing the software. I was in Sydney meeting with a lot of our clients and traveling around. And, but after about it was a year, it was the beginning of 2015, we made a family decision to move back to Adelaide uh, that uh, we needed a bigger size house. And in Sydney, it was going to cost a fortune. And for a struggling entrepreneur, the bank wasn't going to lend any more money. And I didn't also want to have a mortgage that was hanging over my head um, like a Sydney yeah. mortgage demanded at the time. And so we made the decision to move back to Adelaide and moved on to some acres about 15 minutes, minutes from the city, which was amazing. And so that was our move back to Adelaide. So to your question of what did that mean for the business, uh, I noticed it was immediately that it was a great place to build a company uh, because in Sydney, we needed tech talent, but in Sydney, uh, tech talent was really expensive because there were so many startups. You also had all the big banks and all the big government organizations there, the consulting firms all vying for the best talent and just throwing money at people, at graduates and, and also more experienced developers. Whereas in Adelaide, the market wasn't quite so competitive. We did find that people were reticent to even look at changing jobs in Adelaide. It's a bit of a strange thing here that people, they get in a job mm. and we found they were just staying. Whereas we would have loved some hungry, ambitious people to be looking for, for work in really exciting startups. But we went through our networks and we found some great people who came on at affordable prices. Uh, we hadn't raised any external capital or venture, venture capital money. And so we were looking for people who were affordable, who wanted to grow an exciting 
young startup. And so it was great. We were able to build a team here. And the downside was the amount of travel because most of our clients were based in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane. And then we expanded into New Zealand after a few years. So we did have a few Adelaide clients, but it meant that as the CEO and as the face of the business and wanting to build relationships with everyone, I was on a plane most weeks. And so with three young kids and a growing family, it was it was challenging. You'd be on that early flight often on a Tuesday morning and stay overnight and be back late Wednesday or some variation of one or two days a week. But that was yeah. just the price to pay to go and visit the clients. Other than that, Adelaide was a fantastic place to get great talent have affordable rent and everyone can work pretty close to home and it was just a really cool vibe so i've i loved building a company in adelaide i thought it was awesome do you think that australia has and i'm not necessarily talking adelaide here but do you think australia has the ability to create a rival community like silicon valley um or do you think we just don't have the psychology. We're not supportive enough. We're not visionary enough. We don't have the financial and intellectual capital in Australia to to build such a community. Yeah, these sorts of questions are interesting to think about. And just my opinion, um, I think everywhere tries talks about emulating Silicon Valley. And I'm pretty comfortable just doing our own thing. I think I've always felt comfortable personally and with our business. Let's just do our own thing. We don't need to be what someone else is. I think let's take the best of what others have to offer and what we can learn and then do that within the context where we live and work and the country we're in. Uh, so I think Silicon, Silicon Valley obviously is, does amazing things and creates amazing companies. Um, from the, the little time I've spent over there, what I love about Silicon Valley is the big vision that people have. Uh, that people are thinking massive billion dollar companies from day one. And generally in Australia, we try and play it down and we we try and be more humble. And so I, I think marrying the two with what fits best with our psyche here is is probably a good thing. But having big vision is just huge. And I think that's really important for all founders to see a future. Uh, whether that's a billion dollar company or a hundred million dollar company, I'm not so fast. I think it's just, it's, you just need to think bigger than, yeah, we want to be a, a little corner store operation. Uh, I think the other thing that I've seen in Silicon Valley is that, that there is a lot of capital, but there's been capital flowing through that market for a lot of years. They've been doing this for 40, 50, 60 years, whereas we're only just starting to get the hang in Australia of putting money into into venture, into, into angel investments, and where a lot of Australians have made money through property, uh, and the bricks and mortar is has seemed to be safe and secure and also, also been a rocket ship for a lot of people. Um, that venture is seen as quite speculative and, and mm. emerging technologies. And so there hasn't been a lot of crossover there, I think. And it would be it would be great if we probably became a little risk averse, but some people were probably burnt from software companies 15 years ago. And I know definitely in Adelaide that was the case from and people haven't been back since then. But the technology's come so far. I think the maturity of founders and also the advisors and mentors that are available, uh, both um, just in the ecosystem or also those who are looking to deploy capital, can really help support founders in a much better way. So I think we have, have the recipe here to do something really awesome. And hopefully in terms of vision and supporting with capital, but also supporting founders who might not have been successful their first time around. 
Sorry, that was the point I wanted to make about Silicon Valley, that, that running a startup, whether it succeeds or fails, is seen as a badge of honor and that people are willing to back a founder who comes back for the second or third time. And I think that sort of appetite for supporting people who are willing to give it a shot and give it a go is really critical because like, I had a number of failed or just not that impressive startups and ventures and projects over the eight, eight years before we started Proviso. And mm. so if someone had written me off after eight years or I'd finally thrown in the towel and had enough, then we would have missed out on something that grew into something really substantial and grew to a team of uh, almost 20 people. And so I think that all those learnings you gather through the challenges and the failures and, and the things where it's not straightforward and not easy is what leads you on to your, to your next success. And so hopefully we can help founders have big vision, give them a lot of support and just really um, encourage and help each other push through. And if we do that, I think in a great place like Adelaide, we'll start creating more jobs, more great companies and just uh, a better economy based on technology and that, that side of things. Why do you think most fintechs fail? <laughs> uh, startups are, are not easy. And <laughs> I think I, I say that from experience because I did have a number of failures or a number that just really weren't going where we wanted them to go. Uh, so you need to, you've really got to find a place in the market where people are willing to pay for something, something of value. And if it hasn't been done before, then that's an experimental phase of going through and fine tuning the product. And, um, very rarely, it's almost impossible that you launch a product that you sell to the customer on day one and they say, great, this meets my needs perfectly. I'll, I'll pay for it right away. More in my experience, you need to put a product into market that people can see some value in enough to pay for right away or either promise to pay you if you make a few improvements to it so that you can make some money quickly, get some good feedback and then keep developing the product and supporting more and more customers and try to grow it out and learn more from the market that you operate in. Um, and so there's so many potential points of failure along that path. Maybe it's that your initial idea actually doesn't resonate with people at all. And you may spend three, six, 12 months testing that idea and building something and then at the end of that, you've got really not a lot to show except a bunch of learning, but learning doesn't always pay the bills and keep a startup <laughs> operational. So on this journey, you've either got to take investors along for the ride, you've got to fund it yourself, or you've got to start generating revenue through customers to keep, the, keep this startup or this, this company going. And you're always doing it with limited resources and, um, and just trying to make, up, make it up as you go along. So even if you start to get some traction in the market as well and you start to employ more people, then um, if, you've grown, if you've raised capital, then there's pressure to grow from your investors and that can put a different type of pressure on the business. So I think there's always pressure points in, in a startup company. Uh, a startup companies are very different from a large business. They're not just a smaller version of a large business. They're fundamentally different operations that need to be approached completely differently. And sort of you're staring failure in the face a lot of that time or at least it's in it's right over your shoulder you just got to keep looking forward and uh, and i think just moving forward with a singular vision of trying to make something happen so you mentioned um you know a bit of luck and and timing um a while back and certainly um you know bank statements when you started as you said that the, uh, the government um, had brought in the responsible lending requirements. Um, 
Now, I want to just take that line a little bit further that in 2017, the Morrison government um, made the statement that they wanted Australia to be a global fintech centre. Um, and they announced, of course, the Open um, Banking Review. So just from – this is a little quote from Scott Farrell, the, the chair, that open banking is part of a consumer data right in Australia, a more general right being created for the consumers to control their data, including those who have it and those who can use it. Banking is the first section in the Australian economy um, to which this right is to be applied and open banking is the way it will happen. More sectors of the economy are to follow and open banking needs to work together with them to form a single broader framework. Now, obviously, bank statements was right in the sweet spot. Um, and I wanted to ask you, how has the open banking um, review and and that push from the, the Morrison government, how's that changed um, the business and what other opportunities has it now opened up? Yeah, open banking and the consumer data rights uh, are changing a lot in this space. Um, we were, I would see us as being the pre-open banking, open banking people, mm. if that makes sense. So at the core of, of the consumer data right is that a customer, it's a customer's data and that they can choose what they want to do with it, who they share it with, who they disclose it to. And so that could be, for all types of data. So it could be your banking data, that's your data. It sits within the bank, but it's your data and you can choose who you share that with. If that's your insurance data, you can choose who to share that with. And this could be on any number of industries as the Farrell report said, it could be in utilities or telco, or you imagine just with property, how much data there is relating to your property that you own that would be potentially good to share with others or uh, in the right circumstances. So we were extracting this bank data by the customer authorized login for years before this, the, this review into open banking um, was started in the CDR. Uh, but what it's enabled the shift is that banks are now being forced to provide the connections to fintechs like ourselves to provide that data. So rather than just logging in with a username and password on behalf of a consumer, the banks need to provide the API connection. So that's a, a programmable connection where our developers talk to their developer, developers uh, in essence, and um, then the tools are built to connect the two platforms, and which which creates for more robust platforms, uh, which I think is the positive thing. This is still in its infancy. It's the early days, even with open banking. Uh, the first data has started to be transferred in that way, and so this is. This is a pretty fundamental thing for the, the bank statements business, which is now owned by Illion, uh, where they they are like front and centre with with open banking and um, getting data from the banks and providing that to authorised third parties. Uh, so I think this is really exciting space for a number of number of areas that will that will just start to get more data available, and then software tools and software developers are going to start to work with this data and make great products which will benefit all of us in our daily lives and property investment when it comes to credit uh, with the availability of data is just going to be explosion of applications and use cases. I I think it's fantastic from a banking point of view, um, from the way in which we look at the economy and the cycles, et cetera, that as I said, to start with it, that at the beginning of every new cycle, you know, there's new technologies. That that's part of what drives a new cycle. There's 
new technologies, there's new efficiencies, there's new productivity gains that are created, and and this stokes the boom. And I think the fintech um, you know industry is is just got so much there to um, um, you know so much to they they can capitalise on it. It it's really going to be quite um, quite amazing with where it goes, which brings me to the question, Luke, that on your um on your LinkedIn profile, it says, I care about people, I care about our customers, I care about integrity and values. Um, and certainly from my experience, um, um, you know, from, you know, our, our interactions, Luke, I would say that's absolutely right on the money. Um, that would that would be how I would describe you as well, but most people have the perception of AI and automation and robotics and other te- technology um, advancements that will bring exactly the opposite. That it's less about the care, it's less about you know integrity and values and stuff. What's what's your response to that? Yeah, I think there there will probably be always some players who may not may not value data as they should or uh, hold the value of integrity as strongly as they should. But from my experience in the technology industry, most people are good people who want to provide great services for consumers and businesses. Um, so that's that's been my experience. And I think uh, it's important that as technologists and innovators that we do really safeguard people's data, we safeguard their privacy, uh, we ensure that people are clear about what's happening, and so, and, and I don't think that means spelling out every single thing in warning forms or anything like that. Because let's face it, as soon as we get to a checkbox, I agree with the terms and conditions. No one reads them. I think people are very <laughs> trusting by nature, and so we need to make sure that we disclose what's necessary so that people feel comfortable, and that if something. Um, maybe a gray area that we call that out, but ultimately that we just make the decision as, as technologists to do the right thing by people. And, and so there is a fair bit of discretion there for technologists to do that. And so I would always prefer to err on the side of caution and respecting people's privacy and how you treat their data than ever take that for granted. Because as soon as people become mistrusting of what technology can do, then we all take a step backwards. Um, so it's really important that I think we, we treat people as people. We, we understand that, um, that no matter what walk of life we come from, we're all people and we're all valuable and that nobody's a commodity to be used, that, that a, a client is there to be respected and a customer um, really needs to be listened to and needs to be respected and, and treated with value as well. What about the fact, Luke, that, you refer to your character as a character trait of yourself um, of optimism, um, but do you fear the AI and the automation for your children of one living without jobs or in a world you know fighting for their basically you know their basic human rights about an all controlling AI driven robotic being? <laughs> it is. Uh, it's an interesting world we live in. I think it's a world where I'm pretty intentional with my kids of talking to them about the world we live in now, which is one where skills and adaptable, flexible skills are really important. This isn't a world now where you go get a job and keep it for 30 or 40 years. Uh, this is a, a, a 
very fast paced, quick moving world. And this is, I don't think it's anything new. I was doing some family history recently and came across something back in the 1830s where ancestors were fighting against the landowners and destroying machines because their, the machinery that they were working was being replaced by technology. So this has been going on for quite a while, but it is being accelerated. And I think it, it's, it does make you realize that some areas of society are more vulnerable to this, um, especially some, some areas of unskilled labor. And so I think it's an important thing from a government perspective and a societal perspective of how we support each other and how we build communities, knowing that those who do have university education and those who are trained in AI and technology and skills um, that, that really fit the new world, that those people are really gonna have a leg up compared to those without skills. And so we need to do as much as we can to help upskill everybody in our society. I don't think these are easy problems to solve. Uh, so I don't, I, don't worry. I don't worry about these things. Like you say, I, I describe myself as, as an optimist. Uh, I'm excited about the future. I think generally things do, even though there will be quantum shifts in technology over the next 20 and 30 years, it doesn't usually change much from month to month. Um, that these things really, these patterns take years to develop and even decades in some cases in these trends. So I think that those who are aware and are looking out for it can move with the times and move, move with the changes. Uh, but it's something for our society we need to be aware of that we can properly support uh, the whole community in moving in this way um, so that it's not just an elite few who still have jobs developing the AI tools of the future. It's a really interesting one, isn't it? I, I, I have to say, I, I stand on your side um, with, that, with that response that, you know, I think you can go back through history and there's numerous, numerous times where we can show, um, you know, that technology has disrupted uh, society um, in all sorts of different ways. In, in fact, even in, uh, even as little as the, um, in the 1950s, there was a movement called, uh, there was great concern about a movement called the Leisure Society that that with the increased automation of the 1950s, that there was a concern that humans were going to have too much leisure time and what were we going to do with our <laughs> leisure time? You know, because <laughs> it's quite amazing when we, like from our perspective now looking back, but it was a genuine concern of, um, of society. Much of that, of course, has been forgotten about, but it's certainly there in the history books. Yep. Um, but I do want to ask you about the financial, um, especially the banking industry. Um, do you see the move towards, uh, like, obviously, bank statements, you know, started out collecting the data. Now we're moving towards some um, open APIs with the banks actually being more open with the uh, distribution of um, uh, customers' data to where the customer wants it to go. Do you see the banks stepping up and using AI to assess applications so that that assessment, um, uh, you know, can occur much quicker, you know, much more readily um, and without um, or with minimum or zero human intervention? I think there's a lot of scope for banks to do a lot more with AI and intelligence. I think you see that when you still line up in a branch and if you ever have to do that, then it, and it takes way too long to solve it. So there's ways that banks can make their operations much more efficient. And if you think of the lending example that you've, you've just given, uh, I, I'm a big believer that automation uh, can probably take care of almost all or most 
credit decisions. There are some that will sit outside uh, something that's, that's understood, but why would a human be better at evaluating credit when you're looking at numbers and you're looking at transactions on a, on a bank statement? Why would a human be better at that than a computer who can potentially um, cross-match and correlate millions of data points with a human who obviously has experience? And I do value that experience. That experience is worth something, but that experience is especially worth something for the edge cases or the tricky, complicated scenarios. Um, but that there's a big wide band in the middle of fairly standard applications that data tells the whole story. Uh, and it's, but that can be a bit scary for people to, um, for that to be the case. And so I think that's probably why that hasn't moved in some cases faster with the banks. And there's also a change piece that within banks that there are a lot of people who still do do these jobs, which is important to make sure that, that these jobs are transitioned possibly over time or people can be transitioned to other roles or upskilled in other roles rather than just eliminating all those jobs and replacing them with a robot. And like with all these things too, I wouldn't suggest move to 99% uh, automation and decisioning with lending. I would say, well, start with maybe declining some applications that you know you're not going to approve and then start with approving ones that you feel very comfortable with. And that might be 20% of them. And then, okay, what's in the next band? Well, how can we approve a few more? And that's how we've seen the smartest digital lenders do this over the last seven years is starting with a small subset of what they feel very comfortable with and then expanding that over time as algorithms and as their, uh, as their collections then shows how people are repaying these loans that we've approved and then they can start to feed that data back into the system. So I think uh, banking and finance and especially credit decisioning and lending is and can be very data-driven. Is that going to be – will the majors be forced along that line – um, because of the new neo and nano banks that are that are now emerging, they may be. It, the banks are still insanely profitable, as you know. And I talked to banks recently, and they've expected a spike in applications due to either extra marketing or coming out of COVID. And the biggest problem that they're facing is how to get enough credit assessment staff and how to get enough floor space for them. And now I think that's backward thinking. I think that would be better off focusing on doing double the applications with the existing team and that that would make much more sense. But I think a lot of banks are still focused in, oh, well, how can we just double the headcount to deal with double the applications? Um, so I think it's, uh, it's, it's an ongoing thing where different banks and different areas of banks work on this with more success than others. Uh, but it's it's not just a given that, that banks are the leaders in this field by any stretch. That's a really interesting observation you make there, Luke, because so where do you think, like where will the fintechs stand? Will, will, will they be, do you see them as being independent or will they just be consumed by the bigger banks for, um, you know, for their technology and, and, and market penetration because culturally they're very, you know, they might do similar things, but they're very different culturally, aren't they? Oh, extremely different culturally. That's right. Like I would bet on a focused team of two people or five people or 10 people to accomplish more if that is their singular focus than a team of 30 or 40 or 50 people in a very large organization where there's a lot of bureaucracy and overhead and report writing and meetings and everything that goes with that. 
um, that the smaller team, I absolutely believe in the ability of small teams to outperform larger ones within bureaucracies. Um, so I think the... I think that the for fintechs, you have a few different types of fintechs. You've got some who have started, they might be in lending and they've actually started taking on funding from the banks because the banks can be a cheap source of funding for them. And so in a way they end up becoming complementary. It also allows the banks to get their fingers in a, in a few different pies and a few different areas, uh, which I think is, is fine. It helps grow the ecosystem. And if the, the FinTech decides that's the best thing for their company, then that's fine. Would it be great to have more competitors to the big four? Without doubt, but that's mm. not an immediate threat, I don't think. Uh, we also, there's also services like the bank statement service that we had, which were technology providers to the banks. I don't think we were great disruptors of anything. Um, we were enablers to help both banks do things better, but also smaller lenders or neo banks to do things better. So we really enabled. And then you probably have some services which are disruptors coming in, which aim to, um, to really change the way maybe a profit center of the bank and do that in a better way. So some of that may be in something like share trading where it's been a quite profitable area for the banks, um, but somebody comes out with a low cost model or a low fee model of, of share trading and takes a bunch of traditional bank customers for share trading, or maybe it's in business banking, which is traditionally quite high touch and profitable for banks, but how can that be done at scale from a, an up and coming alt fire lender or a neo bank? And so there's areas for disruption. And there's an ongoing debate about whether banks should be able to uh, acquire fintechs because that potentially takes the fintech out of the market and the bank may just then disregard the technology and just take out a competitor or they may use that technology. I, I think we need to be wary of that, but I still I think there's a great value in founders. If they are acquired by banks, then there's a group of a group of founders and a team that has a successful exit that then has additional capital that hopefully in a couple of years, they'll be ready to start another company or angel invest in other companies. So I think that the, the liquidity that banks can put into other companies by investing in them or acquiring them is overall a benefit in Australia at the moment because it puts more liquidity into the, the startup and the tech, technology ecosystem. Do the banks typically see the, the fintechs as a challenge to their markets or like are they, do they seem as threats or are they supportive of the fintech industry in general? I think banks are fantastic at defending shareholder value and they want monopolies as much as possible if you consider the, the big four as, as like a monopoly. And so we've seen that in a number of submissions over the years. And we even saw that with open banking, that generally in the press that the banks would say, yes, we welcome open banking, but I was on enough calls and other submissions to know that uh, the banks didn't want to share their customer data at all uh, because they wanted to keep whatever data they could to themselves. That's competitive advantage and that's how they preserve shareholder value. So I don't think the banks are altruistic in wanting the whole ecosystem to thrive and fintechs to evolve. I think they, they want to maximize their shareholder value and profits and so if they see benefit in acquiring another fintech or investing in another fintech to do that they will uh, but generally more competition is not a good thing and it's not a good thing for big banks even though i doubt it's making much of a 
ahead way into their profits at the moment. But if you fast forward five, 10 years, then the likes of UpBank and Zinger and 86400 and these uh, judo, these digital banks, digital first banks, uh, could really, they'll have an expanded product set. And because most of them aren't lending yet, some of them are starting to get into mm. lending. But when they yeah. start competing in the mortgage level or the personal loan level, credit cards, very, very profitable lines for banks, then you might see more of a pinch in the bank. So I don't think it's hit yet, uh, but I think it's probably coming. That's uh, well, certainly a question without notice and a uh, fantastic answer there. It's um, certainly our observation as well that, I mean, the, you're, you're exactly right. The banks are a very profitable monopoly that will do whatever they can to protect their turf. Mm. Um, and that would have been my expectation that that they would be happy to uh, absorb any fresh, you know, fintech ideas that is either going to, um, you know, help them or create a, create further, um, you know, further advantage for for them. But apart from that, um, you know, they've really got no interest, I imagine, in the uh, in the fintech in helping out uh, or supporting the fintech area. Yeah, that's right. Unless there's something that's of interest to them, and I just thought of another very profitable area for banks, which is overseas money transfer or forex exchange. And we've seen a number of companies, particular OFX, who used to be OzForex, and uh, now AirWallex, who's raised a whole bunch of money and is worth over a billion dollars now, that these are companies that are doing at a much lower margin than what the banks do. And uh, whether it's having a huge impact yet on the bank's uh, Forex businesses, I don't know. But over time, you'd imagine these businesses will continue to grow and put more and more pressure on these very profitable areas of banks. How long do you think it'll be before the the, the nano banks and the like, and the neo banks will be um, actually lending? Is it uh, far away? No, I don't think it's far away. We've seen eighty six four hundred come into the market in recent months with uh, with a mortgage product distributing um, through mortgage brokers as well. Uh, so I think it's it's starting to come. I the last couple of months I haven't been paying quite as close attention to some of the others, uh, but there's been talk of it and always the expectation. I think the the theory, or at least the strategy from most of them has been, let's build our base with deposits because uh, deposits are easier to get up and running. And there's a lot more complexity and regulation and just mm. ongoing maintenance of managing lending businesses. But absolutely, once you've got a base of several hundred thousand consumers with a deposit product, then why not roll out a personal lending product or a home loan product? It's uh, it's a natural extension, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's where the money is too, isn't it? Exactly right. Much more profitable part of the business. Um, yeah. So, where do you think the biggest? Where do you think the fintechs will make the biggest impact? Will it be at um, the, the banking level, the credit level? Will it be to businesses, merchants, consumers? Um, you know, in the home loan market, where where do you think that the real where they're likely to really make an impact? Uh, I don't mean to sit on the fence, but I, I really think there's opportunity everywhere in the finance space. And it's uh, where you look at big markets where there's lots of money involved, then there's always going to be people chasing something in that market. And you hope that there's also opportunity for innovation and the opportunity to really get a five to 10 times improvement on whatever the status quo is. And I think when you start to get five to 10 times improvement, on the status quo, that's when there's a big impact. And if you look at products like Afterpay and, and Zip, 
uh, consumers have felt like those are amazing outcomes, way better than what they had before, preserves their cash a bit extra, uh, they can they can split up payments. And so customers just love those products. And so I don't think any of us five years ago would have said there's a really big market for a sort of a lay-by product where you pay it over four installments. But yet they've come in, they've tested the market and they've created brands that people love. So I think there's lots of areas that are still going to be disrupted, that are going to be changed, others that will just incrementally be adapt over time or be innovated over time. But that definitely mortgages, like you say, I think there's probably a lot of change to come in, in property and how we deal with that. I think foreign exchange, I think how, how records are kept and credit bureaus are managed and run credit decisioning, everything can get faster and more efficient. There's still stacks of room to go in there in all of those areas. So um, I'm pretty pretty excited about all of those spaces actually, Jeremy, and really interested mm. just to see the ideas that people come up with. And I think the best people to have those ideas are often people who do work inside of banks or financial institutions or customers who face the problem because those are the people who face the friction and face the bottlenecks day in and day out. And those are the people that need to say, this isn't right, this could be done better and I'm going to do something about it rather than just putting up with the the friction or the nonsense that goes on every day. Yeah, it's, um, it's an amazing world, isn't it? Um, and as you said, amazing opportunity, which I guess begs the question, what's the um – you know what was the what's the craziest thing that you've seen in the in the the fintech industry? Yeah, cool. Lots of lots of crazy ideas. <laughs> I think <laughs> uh, we we've seen over time lots of variations on the Acorns model. If you're familiar with Acorns, it's now yeah, rebranded okay. as Arrays, which it was um, save money, round up your purchases. So you spend seventy five cents on something, and it rounds up to twenty five cents and puts it in. In an investment account, and which is a fantastic idea, and Raise has been serving hundreds of thousands of Australians really well. We were often pitched the idea when we we're at bank statements because people needed a bank feed technology and acorns for something else. So whether that was a demographic or a racial or ethnic group, or yeah. uh, this is acorns for this, acorns for that. So we saw acorns for acorns for cryptocurrency and acorns for <laughs> loyalty and acorns for people who don't want any interest. And there were there were stacks of those ideas and always we'd always have a bit of a chuckle and say, oh yep, acorns for acorns for this and acorns <laughs> for that. Uh, I've also it's also been interesting to see a lot of um, crypto crypto ideas in loyalty and try and find a fit for those ideas. I think there's been a bunch of money poured into that sector and I haven't gone real deep in it. So I'm no expert in what's going to take off and what's not, but I have seen uh, a lot of money spent and invested in those spaces without probably seeing a whole lot of return from some of those businesses that try and yeah. mash together cryptocurrency with loyalty and making some product out of that. Uh, so I, I tend to be a fairly simple guy and if I can understand it and it's pretty straightforward and the people I want to pitch the idea to understand it, then that's that sort of sits within my realm. But there's a lot of smart people doing interesting things out there, but they're definitely a bunch of crazy crypto ideas that haven't gone too far or taken off that much. I reckon the biggest, the hardest thing with crypto is that, you know, with my, this discussion is mainly centered around the, um, the major banks, um, you know, and them protecting their turf and they'll... You know, they, they will protect their turf, you know, very strongly. 
um, from competitors. But when you start talking about cryptocurrencies and stepping on the um, <laughs> the federal government's turf of the issuance of money, etc., then you're picking an even bigger fight, um, you know, with the government. And I think to me that cryptocurrency, um, it'll eventually, there will be a lot of cryptocurrencies around, but I'm, uh, I'm, you know, more of an advocate of the fact that they'll be issued by central banks rather than individual um, companies. Yeah, that's, that's very possible um, that it'll end up going down that path. I did also just think about uh, a couple of interesting businesses that have, have not progressed or have failed that were mm-hmm. good ideas, I think. Uh, one that I liked the guys from a couple of years ago was a company called Bill Sumo. And that was about bill smoothing and helping people manage their money, money better uh, so that were less, less surprises and smoothing out the spikes in expenditure. And those guys gave that a, a red hot go for a couple of years, had collaboration with uh, some credit unions, uh, but timing just wasn't right. And, yeah. and also the economics of some of these businesses can be tough. I think it's unfortunate in some businesses where it supports people managing their money better. And there are a bunch of budgeting apps out there that do this, that there's not a clear path to revenue always. And so that's a really hard thing because you want these businesses to be successful because they help people be better with financial literacy and managing their money, but they're not easy businesses to monetize. And so there've been a few in that space as well as Bill Sumo that haven't made it unfortunately, but were really good ideas and were actually really, really useful in the market. Uh, so I think if we can find better ways to help people be financially literate and deal better with their money, um, then that's a good thing. It's just a matter of keeping these companies alive. If it wasn't fintech, what would you be doing? <laughs> well, uh, probably 10 years ago, I was working with my brother on a different startup in a different industry. And we were halfway through that. And I don't know what it was, but I said to him and I said to a few other people at the time, I think my next startup's going to be in fintech. Didn't have an idea. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I just had this feeling I wanted to get into finance because um, I think there were big companies. And from what I'd seen, there was money in it so that if you could solve a problem, that there, mm. that people would pay for it. And so that was good mm. because I'd worked in a number of other industries where you could develop some really cool solutions, but people just didn't have the money to pay for it or didn't have the vision to because there wasn't the upside benefit to them in their business for implementing your technology. So I, I think I already made that shift into fintech. Uh, <laughs> and so I'm happy to stay in that space for a while, I think, Jeremy. But if it was outside of that, I'm a big believer in philanthropy. I think we have a lot of philanthropic people in Australia, but not enough. Uh, there are, I read a report a number of years ago that there was, I think it was over 50% of people who earn more than a million dollars a year don't have a deduction for charitable giving on their tax return. Wow, really? Is just an astounding number. And that there are people earning that much money who aren't making contribution to charity or to a community in some way. So I think that's that's a space I think that is great. I also think med tech and the evolution of technology to help support treatments of, of disease or suffering mm, uh, is also yeah. really important and one that I'm, I'm trying to 
get get my eyes into a bit more of what can be done, especially in some third world or Pacific island countries where they're just not blessed with the medical resources that we have here. And so people suffer needlessly, whereas we are wealthy enough as a country and as a people and as individuals to really do more to help. And we shouldn't just be standing by doing nothing. We, we need to reach out and see what we can do. Yeah, well, that's... Um... Yeah, and I was going to say, give you a bit of a segue into your, you know, what you're doing at the moment as well there, because you are a um, a very giving sort of guy. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm at the moment working on the board of the Childhood Cancer Association based in Adelaide. So they're a South Australian organisation supporting families of children who have cancer. And so... My son had cancer when he was five, so it's an organisation that's been a, a really great support to our family. So his, a lot of his initial treatments happened when we were in Sydney at the Westmead Hospital. Uh, but then when we moved back to Adelaide, um, they've supported us in a number of ways. And Chris Hartley, who's the president of that association, uh, I worked for him about 20 years ago in my first job out of uni when I worked at Vodafone. And then he came and worked it for me and with us and the team at Proviso and Bank Statements as well. So it's it's been a, a good relationship we've had with Chris and joined the board there about six months ago, uh, which is great and has been just a good exposure and trying to do what we can to, to help people who are going through a really tough time. And you realize when diseases like cancer and anything else really hits, it doesn't discriminate between um, ethnicity or rich or poor or anything. You'd see that when you're sitting in the cancer ward waiting for treatment that people yeah. from every walk of life are hit by hit by things like this that they're not expecting. So um, we had a really fortunate outcome. My son's 12 now. He's doing fantastically well. He's healthy and active. Uh, but yeah, definitely want to be part of supporting people through that journey. And, uh, and so there's a few other things that I'm trying to look at now and how, how I can be involved um, both close to home and abroad with, with uh, really for purpose organizations who are, are making a difference and often do it on a shoestring budget as well. So if you can be a volunteer mm. helping out with those organizations and lend some expertise or lend some time or lend some insight, then that can, really be helpful in forwarding the mission of those organizations absolutely as you said you know that those 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 sort of organizations i mean you know money they certainly need but you know there's also a lot of it a lot of a lot of input you can give um you know being a volunteer as well because they always need hands on boards don't they to um you know to help with all sorts of projects that's, that they've got going on yeah, that's exactly right. And so we're also very involved with our church and we make sure we volunteer there. And that's a great opportunity just to see ways that you can serve other people and that you can help. And that's important for me and my wife, but also to for our kids as well, to realize that the world doesn't revolve around them and whatever they're doing, but that they have a, a greater role to play in the world and actually giving up some of their their free time um, to go mm. and do something for someone else if that's helping a move house or helping in their garden or just dropping in to say hey how you doing when someone's not well that that's a really important part of, of building building people but also building communities and helping out well at the end of the day you get out of life what you put into it don't you so um totally. you know the more you put in and help the the better life is yep. um maybe finally ask you luke um if you could step into my shoes here today is there something that you would have asked yourself that I haven't? <laughs> You've asked a lot of good questions, Jeremy, and not all ones I was expecting either. <laughs> uh, I think 
maybe maybe just because we started talking about startups and fintechs and so maybe i'll pose a question which i get asked from time to time which is about um, could i start a venture could i start a startup what do i need to do to do that and so is that a fair question would you would you ask that question can i ask yeah, that one absolutely okay. absolutely it's a great question i should have asked i can't believe i didn't oh no no there's, there's hundreds of questions to ask but i think this one's just on my mind because i think you you've got to be a special type of person to want to start a company but it doesn't take a special person to do it if that makes sense uh, that we're all ordinary people who start companies but when you do start you've got to have the mindset and the resolve to really chase down something that is really much bigger than what one person should be able to accomplish and so you need to then get a team around you you've got to um, you might need to get investors on your way and so you've got to convince investors and you've just got to be single-minded so i think some of the the things i think about uh, when i think about starting a business is and is it a good time to do it is uh so are you in a good mental and emotional state um, so I think you've really got to steal yourself uh, a number of tough years. So are you you're feeling good within yourself and are you ready for a, a tough fight over the next few years? Uh, what's your family situation like? Are your significant others? Do you have a spouse or partner? Uh, and um, how do they feel about this? These become really family decisions when you're starting a business. And so you really need to take into account your partner's opinion and feelings. Uh, what sort of financial strain is it going to put on you and your family? Uh, do you have a bit of a buffer there? Could you go six or 12 months or 18 or 24 months with variable income or no income even uh, as you're pursuing this dream or pursuing the opportunity? So I think you need to have the foundations there and ask yourself, uh, is this right for me and is this right for us? And then say, well, what's the insight I've had? Uh, am I close to this problem? Or am I looking at some distant problem saying, oh, yeah, I think that this is an industry that should be revolutionized, but you don't have much practical insight into it. It's really easy to solve those problems. And then you get into them and you realize you actually have no idea what you've gotten yourself into. And then it's much harder. Mm -hmm. And there's reasons why people haven't solved those problems. So I think really understanding how close you are to something or doing the research and getting in there, in there is pretty important and then working out how to build a prototype and how to test it out with the market it's all well and good to survey people and say hey would you spend twenty dollars on this service and everyone all your friends of course they say oh yeah of course i would jeremy yeah that's a great idea your friends are just kind to you they don't want to say no <laughs> and but then when yeah. you launch the product yeah. you fall flat in yeah. your face and no one wants to actually dip into their pocket and pay 20 bucks or 100 bucks for what you're offering so that's why getting a prototype out there is so important and trying to get that quickly into the market i'm not big into NDAs and keeping secrets and stealth projects. It's just get it out there, show people, show people and would you buy it? And so I think if you can tick a few of those boxes and say, yeah, I, I think I'm ready to give this a red hot go, then I really encourage people to back themselves. And I've had that chat with a number of people who've said, oh, I really wish I'd sort of spoken to you 12 months ago because I probably would have jumped out and done something because I can do this. It's too often we hold ourselves back by being afraid of something. So I would just ask people to think, what are you really afraid of? Are you afraid of it not working? Well, big deal. What happens if it doesn't work? You go find another job again. Um, big deal. What happens? And just ask yourself these questions of why am I afraid? What's holding me back? And get to the root of what the, what the cause of the fear or the holding back is. And then if the time's right, jump on in.
And if it doesn't work out, don't blame me, sorry. But uh, I'm, I'm just really, <laughs> really encouraging people to give it a shot and, uh, and really try and back themselves if they can tick a number of those boxes. Um, so I think that's that's the first thing that popped to mind. So actually, I guess a follow-up question from that sort of has got a big, big to be asked, that you were involved with um, FinTech Australia for um, quite some time. Um, and how did your interaction in that organisation um, you know, how did that change your view on um, the fintech industry and, and those people involved? It was a really good opportunity to work closely with some other great fintech personalities, people who founded companies or are very influential with other companies around Australia. And so people I had only read about in the news but hadn't spoken to. And uh, so, yeah, some just some great people there. I won't name names because there's some a whole bunch of fantastic people there. And I think... Other than working with people, it was great to dive into some of the government submissions that needed to be made. And Rebecca Shotguppy is doing a fantastic job as the CEO of FinTech Australia now and leading those submissions. Um, but we as a, as a group of either volunteers, because I was involved for a while before I was on the board. I was on the board for a year and then involved in a number of years either side with submissions. But we'd work together in small groups. You dive into these submissions and you get a variety of opinions and people have different opinions for different reasons. Uh, but that was really valuable. And I, I don't know how much we shape the future of what's happening now, but I like to think and hope that in a very small way that those submissions that we made started to guide some thinking around what government and policy was, was doing. And, and I think it did. And I think that's an important part. And we're fortunate in Australia to have a political process which does allow fintechs and banks and service providers and consumer groups and everybody to all have their say and make submissions. And then usually there'll be some middle ground that, that comes out, which uh, hopefully takes the country forward. So people and process, I think, were the really big things for me that have come out of being close to Fintech Australia. Yeah, interesting answer. Because, I mean, it is a hard one because the by definition, the technology is changing so quickly we we don't know what tomorrow brings and you know so we can only i guess the best thing that you can do is open people's eyes and 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 minds as to what's possible and probable and as you said create some some framework and some thinking um you know for you know how we're going to develop and 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 deal with issues in the future yeah that's right i think that's a really good point and as part of the submissions that i contributed to uh, on my perspective, and I think a general fintech perspective, is governments shouldn't be prescriptive with what technologies uh, are, are written into policy or regulation, but that because the technologies evolve so quickly. So don't be so prescriptive with that. The free market and the free enterprise will work that stuff out. We don't use fax machines now because they got superseded by better things. But fax machines yeah. aren't banned. They're not outlawed. They're there for those who want to use them. But better things come along. And so if governments create frameworks, uh, I think that's really great. And with CDR, I think they've done a really good job of creating the framework. I think in some areas with open banking, they've been far too prescriptive. Uh, but that's also the nature of going through quite bureaucratic committees at getting everybody's feedback and it is what it is. But overall, it'll be something that moves forward. And if, if hopefully these things can be generally technology agnostic because that then allows it for the next, next generation or next iteration of innovators to come and do something that none of us have ever thought before and just make it mm. way, way better. Luke, thanks for joining me. It's um, been very insightful. Um, and I guess 
you know, for our listeners, it's it's such an important topic. Um, as we said, you know, right up front, you know, our, our five drivers uh, include credit and technology are two of the big ones and, and there's massive changes that are occurring here. Um, and I have to say, you know, I asked you some questions before about your views on um, AI and, um, you know, mortgage um, uh, solutions and, and, uh, and the like. And my view is that it's very likely that it's, it's something that we need to absolutely keep our eyes out, that if, if the banks start to really adopt, and even if it's the nano banks that start to push it, start to use AI to, um, to assess credit, then this in itself will help with a massive banking boom um, that will feed the back end of, uh, of our property cycle. Um, and we can expect that, you know, despite the use of, of AI, um, that it will end in a bust as it, as it always does. Um, you know, in another, whatever it is, say seven or so years, um, because of the way in which, you know, that the banks will need to compete to, to get, uh, market share. And as they compete to get market share, those AI algorithms will have to be changed to ensure that they can continue to, um, uh, you know, to assess credit and, and to extend credit because extending credits, how a bank, of course, makes the majority of its money. And of course, as we move through and get into the speculative phase of the cycle, that um, a lot of those, um, uh, I imagine the data sets that will be used to assess those those credit applications will be shortened. Um, and of course, the less of the history of defaults and stuff will be built into them, which will inherently make them unstable, um, which, as I said, will just, you know, garbage in, garbage out. It's, it's not a problem with the technology. It's not a problem with the bank feeds. It's not a problem with the data. It's just a, a problem with the algorithms that, that are written. So um, it's certainly something, as I said, that we as a business will absolutely be front foot, um, you know, looking at and keeping an eye on how that that, that side of the of, um, uh, of credit develops because, as we said, you know, banks, you know, and over 250 years, they still haven't learnt. There is still that boom-bust credit cycle. And, <laughs> and what we've spoken about today is really just creates the the technology and the framework to to feed into that um, into that cycle despite what many people will think that um, you know that they will have come that the AI will the AI will provide the solution to ensure that um, uh, that, that that it never happens and and it'll wouldn't be surprised if some of that leads to the thinking that um, you, you know it, it'll never happen again because this time it's different you know those, those famous words that this time it's different so it's Luke right. I, I yeah I, I sincerely say thank you for for your time today and and I and you know such an insightful um, you know, look that you've given us um, into into the fintechs and and especially the banking and the open banking. What's what's happening there? Um, it's a just a fantastic opportunity for us. So I, I really do sincerely say thank you. Oh, thanks, Jeremy. It's been my pleasure, and uh, thanks for all the good questions and the opportunity to to chat and uh, and yeah, talk to everyone today. Thanks. Well, it is, of course, a very interesting story. If you want to know more about the fintech industry, then I definitely encourage everyone to to have a look up at um, uh, fintechaustralia.org.au. Um, fantastic organisation. Um, anywhere else that you would suggest that they should visit from a fintech point of view, Luke? I think Fintech Australia website is a really good place because you'll see a lot of the membership organisations listed there. And so you can just, you'll see all sorts of really interesting companies working on problems that you may never have thought of before, or maybe right up your alley and uh, are helping solve problems that, that you're concerned with yourself. So I think, yeah, jump on their website and have a look at 
at, uh, at their, their the member list and uh, subscribe to their newsletter because they send out a bunch of really interesting content uh, as well. And so you can keep abreast of what's going on in the fintech industry because it's a particularly interesting time speaking about credit because the responsible lending laws and the onus, uh, I think we're just going to see a lot of relaxation. Yeah. Of, uh, of what's been what's been happening so the cycle is is shifting as we speak and it should be very very good times for property investors I would think in terms of getting access to credit over the next couple of years absolutely Luke we've been saying that for many years um, you know since 2012 2013 that, that the constriction on the banks, ability to create credit that it can't stay um, it's not the way that the the cycles have to pan out that at some point it has to be um, lifted and obviously in the US happened a lot earlier that um, you know the Trump administration wound back a lot of that um, Obama uh, legislation that was put in place after the GFC in our banks and and regulators or well, sorry not our banks but our regulators have taken them um, quite a bit longer to to repeal and change that legislation and the outlook and certainly as you pointed out that's a you know it's a really good observation that the change in the responsible lending, which I find kind of ironic that um, I know we do need to wrap it up, but I kind of find it ironic that that your business, you know, bank statement started, you know, and really grew out of the responsible lending requirements, and <laughs> now that so that true. regime is being um, is being wound back, which I guess is a great little segue into anyone that look if you want to know more about bank statements, which now of course is um, Ilian um, Open Data Solutions, you know, hop over to Ilian um, dot com. So it's I double L I on.com.au. Um, Luke, if some budding entrepreneur has a business or a tech play that um, you know they're going to be the next PayPal, uh, how can they get in contact with you to uh, to discuss the idea? Yeah, the best way to hit me up is on LinkedIn. So just under my name, Luke L U K E House H O W E S, and just drop me a message there or connect and and say hi. That's definitely the best way. Love to uh, love to speak to everyone. Look, do um, you know if you do have an idea or, or want some help, I definitely encourage you. Luke's got an enormous amount of uh, not only information but an amazing network as well. And we, of course, we'd love to hear from you. So you know, don't be afraid to get in touch with us on our um, PAFO socials. Of course, PAFO being the uh, acronym for Property Australia's favourite obsession. And don't forget to like, subscribe, or leave us a rating. And actually, next week I've got to make a little bit of a mention about this, Luke. Um, Next week's episode is a bit of a special one. We've got a birthday special. It's a um, it's a birthday special with a quite an important underlying message. So be sure to have a look at this one. Um, and I reckon it might end up being one of the sort of PAFO classics because it's one of those classic, you know, really interesting stories about property, but certainly from not someone that you would have expected it to be from. So make sure you join me next week. Luke Howes, I've got to say thanks so much for, uh, for joining me. Um, it's been really a privilege. So thank you. Thanks, Jeremy. I've been your host, Jeremy Cowden. And of course, till next time from all of us at Property, Australia's favourite obsession. Take care and let's keep obsessing about property. You've been listening to Property, Australia's favourite obsession. Any opinions, views or recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and should be considered general in nature as they do not consider your personal objectives or financial circumstances. You should therefore consider these matters yourself before deciding whether the advice is appropriate to you and if you should act upon it. Should advice be sought, please seek an appropriately qualified advisor. Investing may not be appropriate for everyone as there is inherent risk and the possibility of loss when investing in financial assets, just as there is the possibility of profits. Your host, Jeremy Cownan and Cownan Flack Proprietary Limited, 
are authorised representatives of PGW Financial Services, Proprietary Limited, AFSL 384713.